back again to the Bad Quaker Podcast, where liberty is our mission. Today is Monday, April 22nd, 2013, and this is podcast number 304. My name is Ben Stone, and what you're about to hear is a conversation with my sometime co-host, Kai, and myself, and uh, Kai called uh, yesterday, Sunday, and so uh, I took the opportunity to go ahead and record it and make a little podcast out of it. So that'll be today's podcast. So I hope you enjoy the uh, the conversation and updates with Kai. So, Kai, welcome back onto the show. I guess I guess I can welcome a co-host that's only on like once a month or something, huh? <laughs> yeah, I uh, I haven't been very consistent with how often I come on. Well, right now you're trying to make a living and earn some money and that kind of thing. So I, it's kind of understandable that people have a life outside of the podcasting world. No! Your life must be the podcasting world. All podcasting, all the time. Um, do you feel like talking about your adventures on the uh, on the trail, or you want to cover that a different time? Um, yeah, uh, we can talk about that, if you'd like. Um, so, uh, you had a pretty rough, ex- uh, experience where, you know, you almost died and so forth. Uh, yeah, well, you know, that, at, like you do. And that, that happened because of a sudden and freakish storm that moved in on you, uh, about drowned you and then tried to freeze you to death. And, uh, you, you got separated from the people you were with, and then you got separated from the actual trail, and then you ended up um, not quite almost getting eaten by bears, although that possibility <laughs> existed. But uh, but you came off the trail for a few days, tried to sort of get everything going, and then you went back on, and after uh, a few days you decided, you know what, I just need to stop this right now and maybe do it another time or whatever, right? Yeah, well, there were there were a whole host of issues. Um, I wasn't I wasn't terribly thrilled with the gear that I had. Um, I wasn't, you know, it didn't keep me warm, <laughs> and it was cold. And we were going into the Smoky Mountains, and we had just heard that the Rangers had issued. Uh, a statement saying that anybody that was going in at that time needed to have like crampons for their shoes and there was like three inches of ice on the trail and you know it was sorry there are cats um but basically it was like well there's like three inches of of ice on the trail that i'm going into um, 
and I don't want to, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and I had been, I'd been going through some kind of difficult emotional, uh, processes because the, the trail sort of takes all those deep, dark, little hidden corners of your mind that you don't even want to admit to yourself are there. And it kind of puts a spotlight on them and forces you to deal with that. And, and that's a little rough. It can be hard. Yeah, long extended periods of being alone in the forest like that can do that to your mind. Even though, you know, I know as you're hiking the Appalachian Trail, there are times when you're with people, there are times when you're not with people. But no matter what, um, you still have long periods of where you're just by yourself. And uh, and that's really... And, sorry. And go- even when you when you are with other people the nature of the challenge is such that you're still doing it alone. And, and humans really don't handle uh, being alone all that well, generally. Yeah, it tends to make people crazy. <laughs> well, actually, and you know, you and I have talked about this, that's one of the main experiments that um, dealing with uh, NASA and you know, training astronauts for long voyages and everything... Uh, that's one of the problems they have with that is that even when you have two or three people or four people all confined together, all going through something that's very, uh, you know, very, um, uh, dramatic like that, uh, even with two or three people, it's still a huge burden on your mind. But when NASA has done testing on individuals being alone for extended periods of time, uh, you you really start to you know the mind really starts to uh, go into some odd places. Yeah, and and it does, and especially when there is that threat of, you know, you could die. <laughs> and and I don't want to make the the trail sound you know, <laughs> I don't want to make it sound overly dramatic because there are a lot of people who hike the trail every year who never ever face the possibility of dying like it's not something that is a guaranteed you might die like there is that possibility but there's that possibility driving to work every day like you know humans don't really like to admit it but death is sort of around every corner and so I don't want people to feel like, you know, oh, the next time you hear that, you know, your son or your daughter or your friend wants to hike the trail, it's not a horrific landmine trap of just death waiting for you at every corner. I just had really bad luck. Yeah, and it was a freakish. really bad luck. It really was a freakish season, too. I mean, there was just nothing normal about this season. Yeah. So it's it's definitely, it's not, you know, it's not the trail's fault. And I fully intend on going back out and doing it again. Um, I just, it was, I was ill-prepared for how cold it really was going to get. And I was also in a pretty emotionally vulnerable state. And the two of them combined were not the best circumstances. So you've run off to Texas to work and make money again. Yes, yes. And you're tenant- currently in Texas. You're tentatively planning on going to Porkfest? Uh yeah, that's the plan at this point. I, I've gotta get I'm I've been 
procrastinating as usual, but I've got to get my registration and I've got to get, uh, I've got to figure out some way to actually get to New Hampshire from Texas. And uh, I'm not sure how I'm going to arrange that, but, um, and then I have to, I'm, I'm, I'm actually thinking about vending at Porkfest. So that'll be nice. Kind of try to help pay for my trip up there. Well, I hope you get to go. It's, you know, uh, you were there last year when I was there for the yeah. listeners that don't know. And uh, it was a lot of fun. It's just a, a really good time to get together and see everybody. So uh, I hope you get to go. I hope so too. It was a lot of fun last year, and uh, you know, looking at the at kind of I know they don't have an official schedule, but kind of what they've posted so far, it looks like it's going to be a really interesting year. It is the tenth year of it, um, you know. So I I, I think it I, I'm really excited. I would really like to go. So have you been following all the fun in the news and everything? I've been trying really, really hard not to. Um, I intentionally try to expose myself to as little news as possible. I feel that my life is better when I do that. That's probably you know, true. I don't it, like. I don't need to know really what's happening in the world. And pe- when I say things like that, people freak on me. They say, you know, how can you possibly live that way? Well. Human beings have lived not knowing what's taking place on the other side of the planet for, you know, tens of thousands of years. It's only, it's only really in the last 50 that human beings have learned to, to be obsessed with what other human beings in faraway lands are doing. So I don't feel the need to really know. You, uh, I couldn't help but to laugh. You said that, uh, you know, for long extended periods of times, uh, human humans didn't know what everybody else was doing on the other side of the planet, and it it kind of brought up in my mind a conversation I was having on our on the Bad Quaker forum with someone when I I pointed out that you know the vast bulk of humanity throughout history has always lived in a state with, with in a condition with no state in a stateless condition. You know, all through, um, you know, throughout prehistory, uh, all through the early, uh, all the way up, well into the early part of the Bronze Age, there was no, there was no government, there was no centralized governments of any kind, no coercion-based, uh, you know, state as we know it to be today. It just mm-hmm. didn't exist. And the person countered with, "Well, you weren't there; you didn't know that." And I thought. <laughs> That's not an argument. I don't even know how to <laughs> twist logic around in a circle to to answer that. That's like, you know, I think on the I I think in the conversation on the forum I said, you could make the argument that we can't prove man wasn't on the moon prior to 1969, but who would make that argument? I mean, <laughs> you know, yeah, we can't prove that man was not on the moon 3 million years ago. Um, but who would make the argument, you know? Right, right. It, it's such backward thinking. I, could, I couldn't help but to think of that uh, when, you, uh, when you said that. But uh, on the topic, I am reading, and I can't remember the name of the book. I'll have to maybe 
uh, put some no show notes or something hooking to it. But I'm reading this really good book by an uh, by a um, anthropologist who has you know a string of degrees and letters behind his name, and he's with all kinds of fancy you know learning college places and and whatnot. But uh, <laughs> but he's also an anarchist, and he in this book that I'm reading. He goes through and documents um, anarchy among, uh, like, uh, the African pygmies, the African bushmen, the African, uh, uh, several other uh, groups like that, through the Australian natives, the, the Aboriginal Australians, through places like Tonga, um, Borneo, and he goes uh, uh, civilization by civilization and goes into pretty good detail about how their anarchical societies function. And, of course, he points out that, you know, not all of these, or, or actually very few of these, um, do things like, you know, adhere to zero aggression or things like that. But they are still anarchical societies that are extremely old and, um, and have a fully functioning legal system and have uh, entirely a voluntary-based uh, social network that they function under. And he goes right. through just like one after the other after the other. And I have an Owen oh, and Eskimos. He, he talks about different types of Eskimos and so forth. And I haven't even got to the part of where he goes into anthropology and goes into ancient uh, civilizations. He's just going through people... Um, well, the book was written, I believe, in the mid-1980s. So he's going through, uh, in that time frame, talking about whole civilizations of people, hundreds, sometimes hundreds of thousands or half a million people living in stateless societies throughout the globe, um, you know, that are basically right under the nose of other states, and states can't do anything about it because they're not a part of the culture. Wow. Yeah, well, and, you know, that's, it It provides, reading things like that provides a model on how to sort of step back away from the state. Yeah, one criticism, and I, and I know this is, someone's going to bring this up, but one criticism of saying, well, you're talking about, you know, uh, Aboriginal people, you're talking about Bushmen, you're talking about you know, essentially a freakish Stone Age societies existing, you know, uh, in isolation around the world today. You can't really point to a modern. And uh, and the problem with that is, yeah, you can. And uh, and this guy might in this book, he just hasn't got, maybe he hasn't just got to it yet. But but uh, Zomia in, South, in uh, Southeastern Asia is a huge culture of millions of people. And they live in like regular houses. They garden. They have cell phones. They wear clothes. You know, we're not talking about um, monkey people hanging from trees and grunting at each other. These are modern people that are functioning outside of the of the reach of the state, because the geographical area they're in uh, allows them to hide from things like forced government, uh, taxation, regulation. You know, all the nonsense that goes with with government because of their remoteness they can function without all those things. And yet they still come into town and, you know, uh, buy things and wear clothes and act like normal people, if you could say it that way. Yeah. Yeah, well, and it's not about... It, and 
And the idea, well, okay, so like the idea of you can't have a modern culture without the state gives the state so much more um, credence than what it needs. You know, the, the state did not invent modern culture. Anything that you use on a daily basis that you enjoy and that functions well and that uh, is modern and, and all of that is done despite the state, not because of it, you know, when you get on your laptop or your smartphone or whatever and you check Facebook, you're doing that in spite of the state, not because of it. The state would not have you do that. You know, the state is not responsible for modernization. The state wants you to stay at whatever level of advancement that it is comfortable with, that it knows how to dominate you with, oh, uh, under. So when you advance further than that, you're doing that despite the state. That, uh, that's very true. If you think, just use computers for an example. When, um, when, the, when the major governments of the world in the 1930s, when the major governments of the world uh, spotted the birth of, of modern computers with, uh, you know, with vacuum tubes at that time, so you, you can say, well, it wasn't like modern computers with, with the type of circuitry we have now, but but it was the birth of computers in the 1930s with these big, massive uh, vacuum tubes and whole rooms full of them and everything. And, um, uh, you know, government, uh, the major governments of the world immediately uh, grabbed this technology from business, forced it to be only used for military purposes, and, um, and would not allow companies to just, uh, you know, invent whatever. They forced these companies to only work uh, in the defense industry and using, you know, because the only purpose in, in the late 30s, the only purpose government could imagine for computers was to use to guide bombs falling from airplanes and uh, aim um, artillery on, on uh, you know, naval artillery. That's the only two uses that government could figure out how to use uh, computers for. So literally for like uh, almost 20 years, that's the only thing that companies like IBM and these other companies, that's the only thing they were allowed to use computers uh, to try to figure out was things, you know, destruction basically because that's what the government likes to do. And it only in, 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 well up into the 1940s, these companies literally were begging government for the opportunity to use this technology outside of government so that they could, you know, open it up and do other things with it, accounting and all the other many things that they saw that they could do with computers. And so, uh, you know, as, as the government's uh, grip on the computer industry started to slip in the 1950s, then more and more companies started using uh, computers in different ways. But still, the government wanted to keep a monopoly on all of that stuff. It really wasn't until, you know, all the way up into almost 1970 when tinkerers and rebels and crazies and hippies and, uh, you know, ne'er-do-wells in their mom's basement and in their mom's garage started uh, getting these parts from a variety of different sources where the government just couldn't control the market anymore. 
and they started getting these variety of parts and Frankensteining their own computers together and getting together in clubs and comparing notes and, and cheating behind the company's backs and making their own computers. That's the birth of the modern computer. Not, you know, not the, the government didn't bring us this. And the old argument is, well, without the government, there wouldn't be an internet. And the same thing goes, you know, uh, human beings. You don't know that. Yeah. You don't know that. It, Without the government, we may have had the internet in 1950. Yeah, you don't exactly. Know. Be because how long does it take when two people have computers? How long does it take for them to figure out, you know what would be great is if these two computers could talk to each other. I, yeah. How long would it take for that to be figured out in the free market? But this technology well, was held down by the government. That, but... but what if there hadn't been ridiculous patent laws and w would we have had cell phones in the 1940s? Like, you don't know because the, the market was held down artificially to such a degree that you have absolutely no idea what the free market would have done had that been an available market. I mean, look how quickly we went from not having cell phones at all, and two, the sp smartphones. Yeah. Yep. It's, yeah. You know, where would we be now? So if you, you... We have no idea. So if you apply that to other things in society, whether we're talking about cars or we're talking about, you know, how to construct houses or how to make roads or any of the other things... In modern society, things that we consider, uh, you know, a sign of an advanced civilization, um, you know, those things are not brought to us by government or by the belief in the state. Those things are held back. Who, who knows where they would be if it weren't for the government? The government didn't create the boom of the last 200 years. The government has been doing everything possible to, to feed off of it and hold it down. Yeah, well, because it terrifies it terrifies the state. It really does. The fact that the fact that I can get on a, a computer or my cell phone and call you over the internet, and we can talk about this sort of thing and broadcast it to the internet and and get other people to listen to it. That is terrifying to the state, and it's not just us. It's the, that idea, that concept, even if we were just talking about what cookie recipes we like, the fact that we can talk openly and freely and without the government being involved, that's terrifying to the, the state. Here's something else to think about, too. You know, now that we have the Internet in the condition that it's in today, and that may change because they're trying to slip through laws, you know, with all the... Uh, current uh, emergencies that are going on in, in uh, the explosion in Texas and everything that's going on in Boston and, and anthrax letters to politicians and all these horrible things that are going on, they're slipping through that same legislation that, uh, you know, that so many people on the Internet were upset about uh, before where so many websites shut down in, in protests for it and everything. Well, hey, uh, you know, while everybody was mad about Boston... Um, they slipped that through. So, yeah. uh, you know, um, so this might all change very rapidly. But uh, what we've, one of the things that we've seen from the Internet is, you know, uh, there's this old saying, well, it's not that old, it's old as the Internet, but um, when something goes out on the Internet, 
you, you once you say it on the internet, you can't unsay it. Uh, you yeah. p- you put a it picture will be there forever. Yeah, you put a picture out on the internet. You can't just go, oh wow, I shouldn't have done that, and pull it back off. It's out there somewhere. Somebody copied it. Somebody made you know twenty six copies of it and put and and penciled a mustache on you and send it. You know, I mean, it, it, it's out there. You can't undo it. And so every time some stupid politician says, you know, something about like uh, Joe Biden talking about shooting through your sh- shooting a shotgun through your door as a way of protecting your house and all the kind of anything like that that politicians say that is so blatantly stupid in the past, it used to vanish as soon as they said it, or at the very yeah, worst, because the media wouldn't wouldn't put that out yeah but at the very worst maybe some reporter heard it and so he took note of it and it appeared in a newspaper for a day and then that newspaper became kindling to light a fire with the next morning and it vanished it was gone you know and and i know that newspapers keep records and so forth like that but the vast majority of what of the record of the day, say you know in the 1940s or 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 1820s or whatever, the vast majority of that vanished by the next day. It was gone and forgotten about. But now we can just go back and do a Google search and find this idiot congressman talking about the island the island of Guam tipping over, or some other idiot congressman talking about the tubes of the internet being plugged, or talking about the internet's not like a dump truck, it's more like tubes, or we can find some idiot congresswoman holding a uh, a rifle in the air telling how dangerous it is it, it is and she doesn't even know how to hold it she's got her finger on the trigger rather than holding it properly in a safe manner all this stuff is on the internet and it can't be un uh you know it can't be undone the damage is there yep yeah and it's it, it's highly accessible you know it does not take the the internet is such a perfect model of the free market because you can take pretty much anybody, if the, somebody who's never had access to the internet before, and you can put them down in front of the internet and they will learn how to use it because it's so user-friendly and it's so intuitive because it's built not by a single committee of people. It's built by the internet it's built by humanity and when you get you know this is something it's a very weird concept to get because an individual person can make something that's very very good and a collective of all of humanity can make something that's really really good but committees and central planning can't there has to be that spontaneity of an open market. There has to be that non-planning, that chaos that comes in from a, a, a free market that allows something to be the best that it can be. When you try to plan it out, it doesn't work. When you have to have that chaotic open market to make something that's as intuitive and as user-friendly as the Internet is. That's really true. Um, backing up for a second, uh, I want to give an example of something that once it's on the Internet, it can't be un, unheard or undone. Um, there were, in all this upset uh, in Boston and everything, and the, the giant manhunt and everything, 
uh, news media, uh, you know, they were jumping out and telling every possible hint or rumor as truth. They would just shout it out like if it was an absolute fact. And local government officials were almost as bad in the Boston area uh, about just saying, you know, things, just like shooting them out of their mouth. And, you know, a hundred years ago, this stuff would just be rumor and it would be no big deal. And, and as soon as it's disproved, everybody moves on. But in today's society, they like, for instance, they, they made the statement that these two horrible terrorist brothers um, had robbed a 7-Eleven. Well, then, you know, somebody calls up 7-Eleven to have, uh, have them comment on it. And 7-Eleven's like, um, we didn't get robbed. There was no robbery. We did not get robbed. And yet, here's the news media and here's public officials saying that these guys robbed a 7-Eleven. And the fact is, there was no 7-Eleven robbery. It's entirely fabricated. Well, then, like, you know, days go by... And then other people parrot what they heard initially. Oh, well, they knew these guys were the bad guys because after blowing up the bombs, then they went and robbed the 7-Eleven. No, they didn't. How do you know they didn't? Google it. And yeah. look at the power of the Internet. Look at the power of truth. Boom, we have it right there. News agency after news agency going with a rumor. And, well, what is it? When you, you know, when, when, when you make a mistake... And you tell something that's not true. I, some people will say, well, that's not a lie. That's a mistake. All right, but what about when you continue to just pick it up and go with it without checking it out? When it's your job to handle information and you get a rumor and rather than checking it out, you just you just go with it. At what point does that rumor become a lie, you know? Yeah. And I think that we we saw a very interesting thing happen with uh, the Boston situation. Now, I I did not follow it, you know, insofar as I watched the the hate week, you know, to use the George Orwell term, on TV. I didn't watch the circus on TV. I didn't go to the major news outlets on the internet and, and participate in the circus there. But being a citizen of the internet, I got residual uh, feedback from it. And listening to people in day-to-day -day life around me, I got some residual uh, information from it. And I think a very interesting thing happened because the internet was faster than the lies that the government could put out. Yeah. The internet was figuring things out faster than news media and the government could fabricate stories to cover it. Now, I'm not I'm not a con well, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. Um and I don't, you know, I'm not going to sit here and say, well, the government was 100% the cause and they set off the bombs and but of course not. But the government has a story that it wants to tell. And the Internet was finding out the truth before the government could put out the story that it wanted. And so we, we ended up with this weird half story of where the Internet would come up with something and the government would have to try to scramble and explain it instead of the government giving its story and the Internet then having to pick it apart. 
the internet was faster than the government was. And that's very promising, I think. That's very, very promising. It, it really is. One aspect was the uh, the siege of that, of that Boston suburb. You know, the, um, the military and the police and everybody swarmed in there, the FBI and all these different, uh, you know, alphabet soup uh, agencies come rushing into this one neighborhood and they completely dominate it and they're going house to house and they're literally physically ripping people out of their houses, sticking guns in their faces, yelling at them, treating them like, you know, like they're suspects. And meanwhile, it's being portrayed in the, in the media that it was, oh, there was wonderful cooperation. The people were happy to stay in their homes and wait and, and, and have the neighborhoods secured block by block. And the people were happy to cooperate with this. Well, the problem is there's uh, private footage from all over that part of Boston with people sticking a camera up to their window filming what's happening at the house across the street where they're literally grabbing people, shoving them around, sticking guns in their faces, yelling at them, you know, forcing them half-dressed out of their houses. Um, this was not a cooperative, fun thing where everybody was all happy that cops were coming through searching house to house. And and so the narrative that's being handed to us, like like you're saying, at literally at the speed of light, it's being debunked. It's like, no, it's not. No, they're not. They're not cooperating. No, it's not being a, you know, this is not a happy thing. People are being abused. This is not, this is not good. We're watching, you know, the true face of the state right before our eyes. And then yeah. I think, uh, you know, a, a day after it's over or two days or a week or a month later, you know, then uh, you're stuck with saying, well, I don't really know how it went down. Therefore, I'm not going to think about it. You know, and, and it seems so complicated. There's so many stories. I really don't want to learn about all that. I really don't. And this is kind of like, um, you know, what a lot of people forgot was um, we're, we just passed the anniversary of, uh, of the burning of the Branch Davidians in Waco, Texas. And there's so yep. many people nowadays who really don't know what happened. And they look at it and it's like, well, it seems very complicated. I don't want to spend the next four or five hours trying to learn about this. So I'll just assume everything was okay. I'll just assume they yeah. were all bad people and they probably got what they deserved. And But at the same time, you know, there it becomes harder and harder when each one of these incidents becomes more and more and more overblown and intense and people are there recording the whole thing you know there there's no youtube footage of the branch davidians inside the compound talking to cameras right we don't know we don't know what their side their perspective was but in today's society if that were to happen now we might yeah exactly you know? yeah there's a there's a uh, picture floating around the internet from Boston of two uniformed soldiers, not police, uniformed military soldiers, um, detaining uh, a probably like a middle aged black man, forcing him to show his identification. And you know everybody who was following the story at the time knows they were looking for a 19 year old and an early 20s. Um, you know, uh, two, two young men. 
they were not looking for a middle-aged black man, uh, and yet there he is being having to show his identification. Like, okay, well, what if he was walking down the street and he didn't happen to have his wallet? What would they have done? What would the reaction have been? And for me, if I'm walking down the street, I'm not driving a car, I'm not operating a motor vehicle, I'm walking down the street, and a couple soldiers come up to me and demand my identification, I'm not giving it. I don't care what happened in Boston. I'm not giving my, you know, the odds are I won't have it with me anyway. I usually don't carry uh, papers because this is not Nazi Germany and it's not 1938. Would you have carried papers in Nazi Germany in 1938? No, no. And and this is a revisionist thing. Like people say, well, well, you don't know because it was a different culture. No, I know, I know. I wouldn't. I won't now. I wouldn't well, then. I wouldn't when I was there fifteen. Were, there were people then who didn't. Yeah, exactly. And it came well, to the point. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, and that's something that people don't people don't really think about. But there were people saying no in Nazi Germany. There were people. There were people saying no, and so you, when when you give the citizens of that country a pass, and I'm not just picking on Germany, but this is the same issue in Soviet Russia. This is the same issue in China. It's the same issue in Cambodia. It's the same issue any time the state gets into power. It's because citizens allow it to happen, and so when you say, "Oh, well, you know." The, the, they had no choice. The, they had to do... No, they do have a choice. You always have a choice. You can say no. You know, that's... Th this is something that people don't even understand. Like, they don't grasp that in your day-to-day -day life, when the state puts its boot on you, you can say no. Now, sometimes, yes, the... Uh, consequences of saying no are going to be incredibly severe and sometimes the fight is not worth the the outcome but you can always say no yeah and it, it's a balance of how you're going to say no are you going to say no in a directly confrontational way you know when they stop you on the street and and they're shoving guns in your face are you going to say, okay, now is the time, and I will sacrifice myself for this purpose? You know, I'm thinking of, uh, I don't know if you heard about it or not, but one of the folks up in the Free State Project who was actually set up by the FBI in an informant situation, and they tried to force, uh, uh, they, they had a guy who was uh, dealing heroin, and another guy who uh, had, I, I'm told, a pound of marijuana. And they cut a deal, the feds cut a deal with the guy who was dealing heroin to rat out the guy with the pound of marijuana. Um, well, that certainly seems... Heroin, whatever, this dude's got marijuana. So the Free State Project person who had the pound of marijuana now is facing, um, I can't remember, it's a ridiculous amount of federal penitentiary time it's like eight years or some crazy amount like that, nine years, 12 years. I can't remember what it is. But he's facing hard time over having, you know, uh, sold marijuana to an undercover agent um, when, in fact, the whole thing happened because uh, they could have gotten the, uh, the heroin dealer instead, but they went for the free, pro free state project 
person. So it's clearly a politically politically motivated arrest. But but above and beyond that, um, you know, he is making a sacrifice in the sense that uh, he 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 stood his ground. He um, tried to go for jury nullification. He tried to work within the system, and now it looks like, unless some miracle happens, he's going to spend hard time in prison. Well, I, I'm not saying that he's wrong or or he made a bad decision or whatever, because only he can, you know, only he can uh, judge his own path. I, I'm not in a position to judge someone else's path, but. Um, but when we make these decisions and when we decide where we're going to draw the line and where we're going to stand our ground, we need to always know uh, what the consequences are if things turn bad. So like me being stopped on the street, then I have to understand that in response to, you know, show me your papers, I'm not showing you any papers, I'm, I am a free person, I'm going to continue walking. That could mean taser, that could mean beating, that could mean death, that could mean being shot, you know. Um, each person has to recognize the threats and, and what to do about it. And in the case of Nazi Germany, a lot of people literally went underground in the sense that, you know, some went underground as far as you know, living in society without being seen. Others literally went into the sewers to get away from them, went underground. Others moved, you know, uh, uh, went to Switzerland and then across, tried to get to France and then to Spain and out of Europe altogether. Um, that's what the movie Casablanca is about, is waves of people trying to escape the Germans and that being one of the avenues uh, out of Germany. But, but to submit, to just say, oh, well, this is good, we're happy to, to do this, um, is appalling. It's just, you know, it's one thing to submit because there's a gun at your head or, or they're pointing a gun at your children. And you're, and you're faced with the question, submit or die. That's one question altogether. But it's a different thing to say, oh, I'm so glad that they're doing this because there was this one teenage, this one 19-year-old kid who did a bad thing, and so now we're going to violate the rights of this whole community over that. Yeah, that's that's not acceptable to me in any way, shape, or form. And what... What really gets me is the fact that it, I, I don't understand how people can look at the reactions of the normal population after something like the, the Boston uh, Marathon explosions and not just be just outraged. I mean, we have people who are actively calling for... They they're they're filled with this bloodlust, you know, and it it truly is like a scene from from George Orwell's 1984 when they're doing the Hate Week, you know, and everybody's lined up watching the TV, going, "Yeah, kill them, kill them," you know, "Our team is great, your team sucks, we're gonna kill you." The, it's it's the Aztec playing football, wanting to to sacrifice the, you know, the other team. It's this horrific, um, it's, 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 it's a terrible part of humanity that really only comes about when the state is there. You know, it is an odd thing. I think you, you mentioned the Aztecs in their football games where 
the winning team lived and the losing team was, were all sacrificed. Um, and that wasn't all that unusual. You know, you think about Rome, and you think about the games in Rome, and um, that only went on where the state exists. Uh, you, didn't, you didn't see, there's no evidence in Norway in, you know, uh, 500 A.D., of Norwegians all getting together and having some kind of a, a, a contest and then having a mass sacrifice at the end of it. You, don't, you just don't see mass sacrifices happening in non-state uh, uh, civilizations. Yeah, uh, and it's, it's something that, you know, when there are all of these markers that happen when the state is around, and all of these markers are terrible, horrible, vicious sides of humanity, it, it leads you to believe that the state is inherently a negative aspect of humanity. It is. It plays on, you know, uh, all of our very worst uh, um, characteristics uh, of humanity. The state plays on those and exists because of them. Fear, hate, jealousy, all those things that are the worst natures of human beings. The state takes those things, amplifies them, and uses those to manipulate people into more and more hate, more and more anger, more violence, more killing, you know, more destruction. Yeah, and it, it's, it's really quite despicable. Well, we uh, blew through and didn't pause for any commercials, so we might as well talk for the next 10 minutes or so. <laughs> Assuming computers don't crash and Skype doesn't give away or, or uh, you know, if Michael Dean were talking, he would say the central scrutinizer shuts us down. <laughs> hey, it's only a matter of time, you know. It really is, yeah. Um, and uh, but, go ahead. Uh, I was going to say, but I have great faith in the internet. Um, that it's it's one of those things. It's like we're we're poised. We're on that verge. You know, we're in we're in that classic movie scene where you have the two armies on hills and they're about to rush down into the valley and have a uh, a battle. That's where we're at with the internet, um, and it's coming, and it's it's going to be vicious and. Uh, I have great hope that the internet will win because the internet does not take uh, take things lying down. Well, the, the nice thing about all this is that human beings have a tendency, whenever tyranny rises, human beings have a tendency to very peaceably look for workarounds. So... You know, as we're speaking, there are people, whether we're talking about anonymous or whether we're talking about just private hackers or whether we're talking about small business people who just uh, who want to continue doing their business without having the government breathing down their throat. There are people who are seeking in every way possible workarounds for everything that the government is doing. So, you know, who knows what the, what, uh, the Internet will be like in a year or two or five years. But I'm confident that there will that people will always seek these workarounds and will always seek towards more freedom, and eventually, uh, you know, will win. Eventually, uh, the 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 state will will show its hand enough that the market will no longer want the state. 
Yep. And and I think that uh, it is going to happen. Uh, I, for a very long time, I have not believed that the end of the state is anywhere near. And I still sort of don't believe that. However, seeing how rapidly uh, events are happening, we're coming very, very close to a, a, de- a, de- a deciding point. And there have been a lot of deciding points. And so far, it's always been decided in the favor of the state. But, you know, the 1960s, the United States was very, 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 very close to open revolution. And close in ways that I think even people who were alive at the time and watching mainstream media at the time don't really understand. You had to have really been in that movement to understand how volatile it really is. Even watching footage, I think, doesn't show really how volatile the situation is. And, you know, there were were other points in in history like that. Well, I think that there are points in time that are coming that are going to be very nasty. And I think that the state is going to show the full extent of its nastiness. And I think, unfortunately for the state, <laughs> we're in a position now where the world does not depend on the six o'clock or the five o'clock news. You know, I can see what's happening right now across the world. If there are riots in Cyprus or Greece or Egypt, or I can get on a Twitter feed and get up to minute exact uh, what is happening there on a minute to minute basis. I know I can watch video of it. I can see photos of it. I can see citizens uploading Twitters. I know what's happening. And so there's no, there's no hiding it. And when things get ugly and they're going to get ugly, the true face of the state is going to be shown. And I think it might happen sooner than people think. It could be. It could be. The, you know, the speed that these things happen is sometimes really, really shocking. In, uh, in Russia... Uh, during the Tsar's uh, reign in Russia, during the 1800s, there were two different times during the 1800s where the people came very, very close to revolution. And uh, one of those times, the the seated Tsar um, practically, uh, he, he came to a point of where he was seriously considering what he could do to essentially open up all of Russia and free all the peasants because the peasants were in, in a practical slavery in, in Russia. They couldn't own land and so forth. And, uh, and one of the czars in the 1800s came really close to essentially opening up all of Russia to a more of a free market uh, type of a concept. And, um, and then, you know, it just didn't happen. There were events that interrupted it, and it didn't happen. So... Um, and then everything seemed to be, from a czar's point of view, everything seemed to be getting better and in control. And all right, now things are, you know, uh, things are looking pretty good. And then all of a sudden, the whole czarist situation fell apart, and he's under house arrest. And the next thing you know, he and his whole family are are killed. And um, my point in that is that 
that history comes and goes in these surges. They, these these things can go along for years where nothing happens, and then suddenly the environment changes very, very rapidly, and things happen that there's no way that a person could have seen that ahead of time. Uh, think of 1776 in the, um, you know, uh, uh, the War of Independence. If you look at the writings of people like Benjamin Franklin and, and others of the day from just 10 years prior to that, they, they had some problems. They had some beefs with the government. But it was all very uh, minor, and it was things, oh, we're going to work this out. There's no problem. But when it came time to actually, uh, you know, when, 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 the, when the blade fell, so to speak, um, the thing whipped out of control so fast that almost nobody on the ground at that time had any idea what was going what it was going to look like coming out the other end. Yeah, and it, it monumental historical events happen uh, very quickly. Uh, the buildup to them happens over the course of many, many, many years, but the actual turning points in history happen incredibly quickly. You know, the the fall of Rome happened that way. It happened. Rome both. was in a decline for for many years, and it was a slow, steady decline. And then all of a sudden, Rome fell. Yeah, all, all yeah, just within uh, almost an amazing time frame, there was a, still a powerful central state guarding the city of Rome and keeping things together. And then all of a sudden, there were Visigoths right there. And they were going to yeah. take over. And it was just like that. And the only way to get out of it is to have the Pope of the day um, load up a, literally a wagon full of gold and take it out and bribe them to go away. And then the whole facade of how Rome was invincible just crumbled. It just fell apart. It's like, well, you know, uh, we came that close to, to having our city sacked. And we had to basically, uh, you know, bribe our way out of it. And, and faith in the government, faith in the system just vanished. And when that vanished, all reason to live in Rome was gone. Yep. And that's, that is exactly, it's, it's faith. It's as soon as that faith is gone, because that's the only thing that's holding the state together. Right. That's the only right. reason the state is here is because people have faith in the state. And when that faith is shaken, there's no repairing it. Well, um, that's a pretty good place to wrap it up today, unless you had something else to yeah. add. Well, uh, I do have to add, in, in saying all of these things, I'm not saying go out and, and sack Washington, D.C. <laughs> not saying that. Don't do that. Not the answer. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that is a good, a good point to put a disclaimer, because we're not talking about revolution uh, revolution only increases the strength of the state. It just takes out the old boss and puts in a new boss. Yep. Yeah, revolution is not helpful. And in fact, revolution is what the state likes. The state likes revolution because revolution puts the state, it, it sort of resets the state back into control. Um, revolution is what the state will always push for when it sees these things happening. And, and you can't participate in revolution. You have to only participate in free market, volunteerism, personal property rights, 
be free and remove yourself from the ideological standpoint of the state and and point out the state, watch the state, monitor the state, you know, show everyone you can the true face of the state, but don't aggress upon the state. Yeah, because it will just eat you. Yeah. I was thinking of revolution and and government and the state and, and the, the three different words. Uh, of course, revolution is exchanging one government for another, and the state lives right on through that. The state's unaffected by that. If anything, the state grows stronger. So I was thinking about, you know, if you have a person who um, who has some congestion in their chest, and maybe maybe it's just in the back of their throat, and they're congested, and uh, at some point they give out one of those really good deep down coughs, and they just clear out everything with one of those really good, healthy, fun coughs that shake everything loose. Well, revolution to the state is kind of like that. It's kind of like a cough because all those politicians and all those stuffed shirts and all those other uh, you know thieves and, and uh, scum that are hanging around in government, when a, when a revolution happens, they become the phlegm of, of society and they get coughed out and spit away. And then, the, and then the state just clears its throat and goes on about its business, and the new government comes on, it comes in, and uh, it's the you know in comes the new boss, same as the old boss. Hope we don't get fooled next time. Yeah. So the yep. gov- the government as phlegm. <laughs> that's pretty much. I mean, that's that's pretty much right on. Like it. A revolution is no good. You, you can't achieve anything using revolution. You can't achieve anything using violence against the state. The state is better at it. Yeah. Well, I used to say all the time that fighting the state, fighting government with with aggression or, you know, uh, thinking that you can change the state by using aggression, is kind of like uh, if you're going to fight Mike Tyson, um, you wouldn't want to put on boxing gloves and go get in a ring with Mike Tyson because that's his element. He will beat yeah. you senseless, even though he's washed yeah. up and old and everything. Still, beside the point, uh, compared to the average person, he could probably still mop the floor with about 99% of the population. But if you're going to take on Mike Tyson, don't put on gloves and go get in a ring with him. You know, wait till he's asleep and hit him with a board. You know, or, or buy yeah. his... Uh, wait, until he, wait until he destroys his fortune... And he's uh, poor as dirt, and then hire him as a juggler to your twelve-year-old daughter's birthday party. That's how you beat yeah. Mike Tyson. You, you yeah. don't beat Mike Tyson by putting on gloves and challenging him in a ring. Yep. And that's the way with government. All right. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So we think, we need uh, to wrap I think it up. Our time's up. <laughs> yep. Okay. Well, uh, one of these days we'll talk again. <laughs> if, yes. If, if everything goes good. If everything goes well. All right. Well, thank you very much for having me on. Okay. Talk to you later. All right. Bye. Bye. Okay. That was the uh, the call with my daughter, Kai, and uh, it was good talking to her. Uh, as always, I want to thank you for listening today, and remember to visit badquaker.com, where liberty is our mission. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.